Yeah, thank you, my man, for taking the ride down and being here face to face. It's so much better. Like you know, just actually being <laughs> in your presence and the energy of, of just talking and just us talking before we even set everything up is much, much of a more homely and, and environmentally friendly feel. Yeah, having like with last week being really the first time I ever did that where I like recorded what I was going to say. I was talking to you offline, like just this thing that happens in your head. When you're hearing your words back, and I guess for people who, who do things like that as a profession, that probably goes away right. after a couple of days. But, um, but just being very conscious of everything that I was saying because I felt like it was being memorialized, even if you know it's only a couple hundred people that ever hear it, just right. the fact that your thoughts are now permanently out etched on, on the ethos. You know what's crazy about that that you say that? For me, it was just the opposite experience. Like I was sitting in, actually, you know, I'm going to just confess now, I was laying in the bed, like in that half lay, half sit up type of uh, position with my iPad on my lap. And probably about 20, 25 minutes into it, I forgot we were recording it. I forgot we were doing it for any purpose. And it was just you and I having a really dope conversation. Yeah. It's, uh, it's cool. I, I don't know what the feedback has been for you. I played it for, you know, 20 or 30 people. Um, got the got the the usual comments about duration, right? Yes, so that was the big pushback. It's like, how oh, this is so long. I, I can't commit two hours, two and a half hours of my life. But then you look at like others who are doing the format. Like Joe Rogan had a guest on the other day for four and a half hours. Wow. Like that's too long. Right. Like, I don't expect anybody to sit through that. But there's this medium. Like the the whole idea is that you can get into stuff. Right. That you can't in thirty minutes. You know, thirty minutes Q and A out the door you didn't get to say anything but what you know you're you were scripted to say yeah you're free you're you're predetermining the whole format you're pre deciding questions and and as a result of knowing what the questions are ahead of time you're predetermining answers and the authenticity of it just goes away you know for me the whole purpose of doing this is to just be transparent and authentic and to let it roll out and to catch a moment that yeah, you know, right, <laughs> who right. knows what I'll say <laughs> on any given moment. So it's just to, to connect and the conversations that you and I had last week were reminiscing the conversations we've been having since 2001. Yeah, so yeah. it wasn't staged or artificial and it was just good content. And I thought of things that I want to discuss this session and I know we're going to have like a great conversation about it, but I've I didn't do anything other than think of what those things are. Like I didn't, yeah. you know, start scripting out in my mind because whether this goes and grows to anything of significance, I won't want to do it if it's, you know me, if it's too structured and too right. Right. buttoned up, that's not who I am. And whereas I do want to convey professionalism and I do want to bring things of meaning to people, I definitely don't want to be just a talking head. Like I want people to say, "Hey, you know, we, we holler at this guy because he always says something that gets us where we want to be." Yeah, I, uh, the, the, you use the word sessions, and it's funny because I was telling Jessica, my wife, earlier today. I said, "Like it's kind of like therapy mm. in, in a way, because you know, you, we have we have a trust relationship, and there's there's certain people that you just vibe off of. Like mm-hmm. you can you you cannot have. I said it this way. I said, "Like there are thoughts I won't have." 30 days of the 30 uh, 29 days of the month but right. I spend one day with Tank and I'm thinking about something yep. different at least I'm thinking in a different angle and you really can't you don't know what's going to come from that right you know so surrounding yourself with people that bring other aspects of you out bring other thoughts forward is always conducive to to growth I think that when you you, you 
hit the nail on the head, first of all, because of our similar thought patterns and our similar desires out of life in general, we're going to always talk at a level that although it's friendly and although it's organic, it's progressive. It's, right. it's, it's not about some BS. Like, I don't waste time. You know, I was listening to, you know, I'm a huge Audible guy. I listen to so many books, and I was just scrolling up through my library the other day, and I'm proud of myself. Like, I've really poured into myself over the years with just great books. I was even looking at, like, where where did I come up with this book from? Like, who, who, who told me about the four agreements? I'm wrapping up the four agreements for the fourth time right now, driving down here. And what I thought about, you know, based on our conversations and listening to some of these audiobooks is that a lot of what I'm hearing now, you know, we have our, our decade age difference plus, but for me at this stage in my life, it's about doing things for the, the actual experience of doing them. And before it was checking a box, right. you know, before, and I, I said that on one of my little mini videos, yeah. I don't want to do things because I said, hey, I was going to take Spanish and I want to get an A in Spanish. No, I actually want to come out of Spanish class speaking Spanish. I want right. to right. do the thing that I set out to do because I don't want to speak into existence any limitations, but hey, I'm closer to the end than I am to the beginning yeah. at this point. So I don't want to waste my time. I don't want to have empty experiences. And the thing about achieving the success to the level that we've both achieved at this point, which we can both clearly enjoy, but quickly remind ourselves we haven't done anything yet, is to know that there's so much more to experience, right? Like yeah. you see something and you know there's more to see. Yeah, I think that that, that idea of checking a box is so is poignant because like I think coming up you there's things you want to have said you did, which is different than wanting to do something. Right. Right. So I, 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 I still feel a lot of that, like where it's like, I don't want to have not done that. And I don't, I don't want to be able to say, hey, man, yeah, I've, I've been to that city. I've, right. I've seen that show. I've done whatever. But it's not that I honestly want the experience. I want to say, say I, did, I yeah. did it. And that's like that real braggadocious, you know, yeah. checkboxy stuff. But you're, but you're right. I mean, at some point, you're left looking backwards and saying, you know, like, how much of that do I even remember doing? Right. right? And, and what if it was meaningful? And it's more the relationships, it's more the experiences you have than it is any of the, I did this, I did that. We started last week's conversation off talking about the casinos. Yeah. So, you know, being really, really deep into the card counting life that I got over, I guess it was 2010 through 2012, a lot of perks, a lot of comps, and one of the things I got to do, I think it was three different times, was fly on Caesars uh, Gulfstream, you know, their, their different private jets. Yeah. Now, the funny thing about it is it goes right to the heart of what you're talking about. That is definitely something I want to be able to say I did that, but I hated that shit. You know, I'm scared, <laughs> I'm scared of flying. Like, you know, I'm petrified of planes, and the smaller the plane, the higher percent yeah. chance it's going down. <laughs> so I'm sitting there like, yo, this is dope to be able to say I was on a private jet, but... Get me off of this thing. Yeah. Like, I, didn't, I didn't like yeah. that at all. One time we had to land somewhere short of our destination Ooh. because of inclement weather. I was like, oh, this is not good. You know, when they start telling you to, especially because I'm always the biggest person there, can you move on to that yeah. side? Of the, it yeah. doesn't matter. Like, right. if, it, if it comes right. down to that, then right. I don't want to be right. here. Right. Like, really, does it matter? <laughs> how did you uh, How did you get into playing cards? Like, what's the, where'd you get introduced to it? So, you know, my mom is probably like, 
fortunately, she doesn't hear or see a lot of things that I do these days. So, because she probably would just shake her head and finger and deny a lot of these things because I'm sure she thinks there's no statute of limitations on <laughs> abusing and misleading children. So she would be like, I didn't do any of this stuff he says he did, but I did to him. But I learned from my mom uh, from a standpoint when we were younger, and God bless my mom because we talk about what sparked, you know, in, in off-camera conversations, we talked about what has sparked the path of just wanting to grow in my life. And it definitely was seeing more than the city blocks I grew up on. My mom's effort when we were younger to get us out of the hood, so to speak, the two vacation spots we hit quite frequently were the Poconos and Atlantic City. You know, both like an hour and 15 minute drive from where we live. I don't know how she scraped up the money. God bless her. I don't even want to know. But we did Atlantic City more than more than two two or three times a summer. And, you know, this hugeness wasn't an overnight thing. I think when I was 13 or 14, I was almost six feet tall. So as long as I didn't speak, because I sounded like Michael Jackson until <laughs> I was 18, I had a, I was a soprano in the choir. It was, it was the most embarrassing thing. I won a couple of talent shows singing DeBarge songs, if you can imagine that. So as long as I didn't speak, I could walk through a casino and look like a grown man. So I would stand behind people playing cards and learn blackjack, and I learned baccarat. Just the card games always fascinated me. I never liked dice, never mm -hmm. liked craps, never liked roulette. And it was funny when I grew up and went so much deeper into mathematics as a, you know actuarial science studies at Temple, I realized, you know, I was pretty smart when I wasn't smart. Like, I, I didn't realize how bad the odds were at roulette when yeah. I was 13. Right. But then to come to realize, oh, this is like balling yeah. your money up and rolling it into the fireplace if you're going to do this. So I started as an observer and really quickly, I mean, it's not a hard game. I, it, I still laugh to this day when, you know, just that when we had our conversation last week, earlier that day, I was telling people about playing cards. And telling them, you know, starting off with the whole, yeah, I count cards, into six decks? And I'm like, yeah. I said, let me ask you a question. And I don't want to be demeaning. I said, but you can count, right? Like, not count cards. You can just count, correct? He said, yeah. I said, is it any harder to count to 100 than it is to 10? Like, you're just counting. You're just going yes. up. The, yes. the numbers don't get any harder right. as you get further <laughs> away from zero. So counting into a one into one deck counting into three decks counting into 17 decks it doesn't matter you're just counting and the reality is and this is where you know people who watched on a movie about card counting or think they know something they don't really realize what you're doing or trying to do and it's easier so to speak to count into a six deck shoot than it is to count single deck because the casinos always being on the lookout for card counting and not giving an advantage to a player, they cut the deck with the yellow cut card damn near half, sometimes even more than half, hmm. to the front in a one-deck game. Because that's, you know, everyone will try to count into a one-deck game. People right. feel like they can right. remember 52 right. sure. cards. Sure. So they'll literally be shuffling 38 to 42 cards into, I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize, 28 into 30 cards into a deck, they're shuffling. You know, you're halfway through the deck and it's time to shuffle already. Yeah. At least with a six deck shoe, they'll cut, the standard box will cut off the last two decks, but you, you know, this is where you, as a player, you get experience, you watch the dealers and there are some dealers 
that'll cut less than one deck off at the mm-hmm. end. And those are the tables you want to sit at if you're a card counter because it's all about the information, right? Right. So you have six decks of cards in this box, the shoe we call it, and they have determined that 48 of the cards will never come into play. Well, that's great. I can get a lot of information off of the remaining, what's yeah. that, uh, five is 250, 260, 264 cards. It's a lot of information. I'm seeing a lot of a higher percentage of cards. Yeah. You can get, is it plus and minus? Plus and minus, yeah. So I'm getting can, the true count yeah. when I divide by the discarded cards and things of that nature. I can go a lot further with that information so that when I play the last two hands of that shoe, you know what's up. I'm pretty confident as to yeah. what's coming. Yeah. And that's all it's about, right? It's about finding the right opportunity to strike when, when things are best in your favor. In your favor. Yeah, and, and getting a lot of hands in. You know, yeah. you got to play a lot of cards. And that was really why I stopped playing cards. It wasn't so much that, part of it was the leverage. Like when, the, when the Vegas attacked me and wanted me to stop doing what I was doing, they made it very difficult. And the number one thing they took from me was my leverage. I had over a million dollars of casino credit, which made doing what I did for three years a lot simpler, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. When they cut that off and I started playing with my own money, the, the odds went against me. And psychologically, I started to make a lot of mistakes on my own. So, you know, I, and this is another thing. When I would go to Vegas during my 2010 to 2012 run, I would fly in on Thursday night and stay and come back on the Sunday night red eye. I'd pick three casinos to play at. Each one I had a $100,000 credit line at. And I would walk into the casino knowing I was going to play three sessions in the morning, mm-hmm. so three different casinos in the morning, break in the middle of the day. I had a great life back then. <laughs> you know, yeah. Go to a pool, i do whatever, yeah. maybe yeah. a Cirque du Soleil show or whatever, and then play three sessions late at night or in the evening. And with those six sessions a day for basically three days, because Thursday I was getting there at night, so Saturday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, my goal was to win 3% of my bankroll each session. Mm-hmm. Never worked out, you know, linearly. You would lose, win, you know, yes. but average. It would always work out on average over time. And when I tell people that, they don't get it. Like, you know, when I I, I ask people, hey, if you walked into a casino with ten thousand dollars to play blackjack, what would you consider a good time session to to have played, and how much yeah. you'd make? Yeah. Oh well, if I you know if I made twenty thousand on the ten thousand, that would be good. What? <laughs> like, where did they do that at? Right. And they're like, well, what do you think? So the guy said, if I would, on $10,000, you know, if I made $300, mm-hmm. that's good. Right. I'm like, what? Why, you know, why waste your time? And I said, exactly, though. But I go in with 10 times that. I go in right. with 100000 Now I want to make 3000 3000 right. three three times in the morning, 9000 twice a day, 18000 three days in the weekend. It's yeah. $54,000 weekend, baby. Yeah. You know, yeah. if I have a 60% successful weekend, I've made thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. So, it was a great, great time, and like I said, it was a, a quality of lifetime that was really, really fun for me. Yeah, uh, sure. A lot of, a lot of um, acts of ill repute went on during that time frame, but what I remember most about it is that at the end of the day, even when you put the statistical table odds in your favor, the house does always find a way to win. Yeah. You know, and that and that was the, the the end experience for me on that. And so when I started playing with my own money, post divorce, you know, first of all there was less money. Yeah. And then playing with my own money, I would I couldn't be happy going in and getting three percent of 
$2,000. Yeah. 60 bucks. Like, right. I could literally go to work and make 60 bucks. Yep. This, it wasn't fruitful. And so now you're sitting there trying to be like the person who said they wanted to make 20000 off 10000 Yeah. You're trying to triple and quintuple your money, and now you're you're gambling. Yeah. You're not playing cards anymore. Yeah, totally, you're gambling. Totally feel you. I, I, my game of choice is poker. And I'm not a blackjack guy at all, but but poker since I was little. I mean, I, I learned how to count. Like, this is cliche, but I learned how to count playing cards. We, we grew up in a um, uh, condo community in uh, Menlo Park up by Woodbridge. Mm, yeah. And uh, it, in our little area, my mom was, you know, stay-at-home mom, so I was there, you know, with her all day. It's not true. She had a dress store, but I, but spent a lot of time there at the, at the apartment. Across the way, there were three old guys who would get together and play, play poker oh, wow. ev- every single day. And they were in the little cul-de-sac, so like in the little you know, square in the cul-de-sac, you know, grassy area mm-hmm. with all the buildings around it. So even at, you know, I was under, I was probably five years old. Uh, and even at that age, you know, it was, it was fine for me to, like, leave our apartment, walk over, like, my mom could see. And they were, you know, wonderful guys. Right. Um, and they, they made me their fourth playing play at, at five. So, like, I was just learning the faces, learning the cards. But I played, I've literally played poker since from that point on. Wow. Um, predominantly home games. Certainly before all that caught, caught on. Like, yeah. there was this big yeah. wave of Texas Hold'em that just went nuts and, and the World Series. I was never into that. Um, it was just house games, you know, everybody brings cash. Yep. You know, you're going to you're gonna walk away, you know, on a good night, you'll walk away up 1500 On a bad night, you know, you'll put three, 400 you know, in somebody else's pocket. Then I got into casino poker. Then okay. it got into, like, you know, what can I can I come close to making a living? Because you're watching on TV. Right. You're watching guys, and, and I'm arrogant as fuck. You know, <laughs> but, but I'm watching people play and going, like, of all the things that I think I'm good at, mm-hmm. I know I'm good at that. Right. Like, I know I can go play World Series and, and hang. Right. Not, not win. It's, it's like watching people golf. Like, even if you're the best golfer in the world, you're only going to win an infinitesimal percentage of the time. Exactly. Tiger broke all those rules. But right. a, a regular golfer, you're not going yeah. to win once or twice Once you one tour, and you're just a great year. Yeah, exactly. So, and, and poker tournaments are the same way. It's big payoffs, but it's a grind. And mm-hmm. it's, it's going back to what you're saying. So when you're, when you're playing casino tournament poker... That, that will last, you know, if you play a you know, World Series type event, multiple days, seven to ten hours a day mm. at the table, for most of the people who enter to walk away with nothing. Yeah. Right? Only the top 10% is even in the cash, and then you, you really have to be top 10 to even be taking anybody else's money home. So you run the numbers and you go, this is, I love doing this, mm-hmm. but what am I getting paid? If I, right. if I were, what am I getting paid per hour for this? Yes. Or where you were, how big, how much do I have to be risking for this to be economically beneficial to me? And you get to real big numbers. You're going to be playing games that are, you know, ten thousand dollar entry fees on a weekly basis. You get a bad a string of bad luck. Yeah, you know, you're half a mil in the hole, and you exactly. didn't, even, didn't even look. But what you um, what you realize is that these these are jobs. When you say somebody's a professional gambler, right? It's a job. I've I've seen you keep the ledger yeah. and understand where you are. Over a month to date, year to date, trend analysis. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a whole thing. It wasn't as fun and glorious. And, you know, I, I think I learned that from my guy Trey Johnson when he went into the NFL. You know, it's the NFL. You know, you're yeah. looking like, yo, this, my man made it. We're, we're, we're yeah. playing football on Sunday. He said, man, this is just a job. Yeah. He says, work. He said, you know, it's not as fun as it looks when you have to do it to support yourself. Yeah. And, yeah, so I had a good time, but it was work, and I didn't do it for fun. 
And when I did it for fun, the times that I escaped my discipline, always lost. Yeah. That's not fun. Right. Like, losing right. is not fun. Right. So, you know, you're showing off. You're out there. Some people there, they want to see you do something. Do, do, do something magical. You're, <laughs> and like, I'm like, I know there is no magic, but now yeah. i got to try and show some right. magic. Right. And you're chasing. You, yeah. you wind up chasing. You wind up making plays that you know are not sound. Right. But you want to make action because you're you fucking bored. And you want to show them, like, this does work. Watch. Yeah. yeah. Or you're down so much for a given day yeah. or week and you're trying to catch up. You're trying to beat the odds, even though you know that's, that's not how it yeah, works. Not how it works. You're, you're going against your own plan just to make something happen. Mm-hmm. I think that that's um, to, to bring cards back to life, which I, I think is, you know, my mind, direct correlation, right? Gambling and poker and, and what happens. I think so much of that is life. I find yeah. so much life knowledge in that. But but I think that's a life lesson, right? When you're chasing, when you're when you're not letting the action come to you, when you're out there trying to make things happen, when you're looking the other way and you're like, I know this dude's shady, but I really want this deal to work. Right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna disregard all these facts and the last three people he screwed. <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna be the one who beats, beats him. Beats him. I'm gonna get it right. And that's when you get in trouble. Exactly. You're bucking the trend and you know you're doing it. But once again, when you're like us, that risk and that excitement that comes from it is almost more important than yeah. than the, the victory. Like, yeah. you know, it's just like I wanna I wanna break this will. You know, I've always said, and there was a, a line from a Tom Cruise movie, it's called Cocktail, older Tom Cruise movie. He and his mentor, bartender, they were bartenders in the movie, and the, the mentor had challenged him to pick up a woman at the mm. bar, pick up one of those. And Tom Cruise went down, talked to this woman. She seemed very ice cold to him. He came back to his guys. Guys like, it's no fun. I mean, don't, don't he said he said, didn't get her number. He said, easy man. He said it wouldn't be any fun if they all just fell over with their legs in the air. Yeah. And uh, he went back out and talked to her. He got the number. And I've always loved that line. I guess that movie might have came out when I was still a teenager or yeah. early twenties. And I took from that when you are. Once again, I like to classify myself as a, a winner, whatever that means, an yeah. overachiever, a type A personality. The challenge is as much of it as anything else is. You don't want to do things that are easy. You don't want to do things that are common. And you get yourself in trouble. You know, you yeah. take, take big risks, but then there are big rewards on the other side of those risks. And you have to be built for it. That was another thing I heard a lot from people who watched me play cards. I couldn't yeah. stomach this. I yeah. couldn't. These, you know, I, I, how did you just lose a hundred thousand dollars and you're okay? You want to go get dinner? Like, do you want your back rub? Like, what's wrong? Like, I, I feel bad for you. I'm like, yeah, yeah it's cool. You know, yeah. it's fine. And they couldn't understand that. And it wasn't reckless. Like, it wasn't, I wasn't like, oh, just hundred thousand dollars. Like, I just am made of money. Yeah. It was, I know this is all part of what yeah. it takes to get to where I'm going and it'll, it'll come back. But it's funny because I've always liked poker. Poker looked cool. It's like me with football and basketball. Yeah. Was made to play football. Loved playing basketball. Not very good at it. Good enough because of my size, but wasn't a basketball player, but loved to do it. Same thing with poker. I'm no poker player because I don't have the patience required mm-hmm. for poker. Blackjack is definitely much more instant feedback. Yep. But I got a great poker story. So... I was at the Mirage in Vegas. I was invited because of anyone who had a $50,000 or larger credit line was invited to these complimentary events. And this was a $500,000 winner-take-all poker tournament. And they had invited 
oh, I don't remember how many people, but I, I want to say it was a hundred people at first. And it wasn't it wasn't huge, but it was you know the odds of me sticking yeah. around were yeah. infinitesimally small. Yeah. So we start playing, and I realized there are real poker players that I saw on TV. Sam Farhar was there. <laughs> The guy who owned a casino, like, you know, like these guys, like some of their names I don't remember, but yeah. you know, Russian vodka, czar. It's just just people there who had lots of money, and little by little, I started to make my way. I, I, I won yeah. a table or they consolidated table. I moved on, and the next thing I know, I'm at the final table. It's like ten of us left. Sam Farhar is still there. The two billionaires are there, and I found out one of the guys. I forget which set of casinos he owned, but. He was the guy who, at least this was the rumor at the table, he invented the concept of mini marts and gas stations. Wow. Like, you know, we see them everywhere now, yeah. but somebody thought of that a long time ago. Like, hey, you yeah. know what? While you're getting gas, get your AIDS. Right. And he, he supposedly, if he didn't invent it, he brought it to the region where he was. Like, he made a bunch of money with mini marts. So we're playing, 10, 10 of us left. And I'm just happy to be there. In the money was not a concept for me because yeah. it was winner take all. So I'm like, I'm not going to get any money from this. That's fine. First person loses. I actually had a pretty good amount of chips when I got to the last table. So the first person lost. I was starting to lose chips and I was starting to lose my confidence and mm. I was starting to get bored and I wanted to go play blackjack. So I did a very aggressive bluff mm -hmm. and I won. And the guy folded, and I was like, oh, man. Like, now people are starting to think better of me right. than I right. deserve. Right. Like, you right. know, so I'm getting a little reputation, and I'm bullying people with my stack, things that I learned on the World Series of Poker just from glancing <laughs> at it. So now there are seven of us left, and we take a break, and they start talking about chopping up the uh, pot. Yeah. And I'm like, wait, I can get some money now? Because <laughs> it's like, it's $500,000. When we get down to five, right. let's just all agree to take 100000 yeah. yeah. I'm like, hell yeah. And somebody says, it's never going to happen. And it's like, why? It's like, such a great idea. Yeah. It's because like, Sam, and I can't remember the billionaire guy's name. It's just Sam and this guy are there. Yeah. And Sam thinks we all suck. Like, he thinks right. he's better than all of us. He wouldn't dare throw in his hat with, with us losers. And the billionaire dude doesn't do this for $100,000 right. of casino chips. He's a billionaire. Right. He wants to win. Right. So we're, they're never going to chop. So all of a sudden, you know, the competitor in me came out and said, well, let's get, these, let's get these cats off the table. And I took Sam Farhar. Oh, that is awesome. I took him out. I, I, on a river, I got a, a, a full house. And he ended up having, I want to say, trips. Yeah. And he, you know, he said some disrespectful sure. under his breath because a rookie, you know, it, yep. I, I shouldn't have won and I did. Yeah. But, you know, and, and I, being me, I said, don't get your ass whooped over this, Sam. Yeah. Like, let's all remember <laughs> that these are cards and chips. I'm still 6'4", you know, got, got these size 17s to place right where you need them at. And, you know, he walked away peacefully and still intact. So then we got the billionaire guy off, and we ended up chopping up 500000 amongst the four of us. Nice. 125000 It was uh, promotional chips. It wasn't cash. Mm. But that was back when you could take a promotional chip, wager it, and if you won, you got to bring your promotional chip back. Now casinos are they're just yeah. so aggressive. Yeah. And you bet a promotional chip, you win. They'll pay you, but they take the promotional chip. So it's not as lucrative. So I was going to go play my chips at the blackjack table. And this guy's like, well, you know what you do, right? You go over to the Baccarat room, and you just bet against yourself. 
and you figure even if you lost every hand with the 10% big, yeah. you're going to end up getting 90% of your promotional chips in cash. I was like, right. that's much better odds than right. going to play blackjack with it. So I did that, and I ended up with like 105,000 cash, and it's just a good night. You know, it was a yeah. good time. I had a good time. Yep. So that that Vegas was, was good to me. Traveling the world playing cards was good to me. But at some point, I think you realize you have to go and grow up, and you have to realize that this isn't sustainable. It's not the type of life you want. I got to a point where all I was doing, even when I was winning, was making money. Yeah. And this is when you start to realize those sayings that you never thought you actually would agree with are right, is that it's about more than making money. Yeah. So I, you know, I think my course, my, my career ran its course right at the time it should have. And, yeah. and I'm happy to have some good memories and some good stories, but moving on to the rest of my life was definitely needed. Yeah, it's one of those, um, one of those things that's so sexy, right? That idea of gamblers it's it's glamorized and it has been for you know mm-hmm. i guess millennia right yeah. that idea of somebody who's willing to take a risk but but so much of that transitions to entrepreneurship like this idea that i'm not going to go work a nine to five i'm not going to take a safe route i'm going to roll the bones literally yep and bet on myself and be have confidence at you know at, at an endeavor and when that one doesn't work i'm going to pack up and i'm going to go do something else and and just that that Anything but that is defeat. I guess that's kind of the way the way I feel about it. Like if I if I ever went and did a nine to five, I wouldn't I wouldn't be a happy person. Right. You you feel like defeated and trapped in your new life. That's not even a life. Yeah. Uh, going back to the whole audible book thing, I listened to Fifty Cent's Hustle Harder, Hustle Smarter, and it was a challenge to listen to. Fifty reads like. He should be at the Goddard School sometimes. Like he's, it was, I wish he wouldn't have read his own book. I don't know. It, just, it was troubling sometimes, but I did actually enjoy it and got some good yeah. information. Yeah. But he had that same mindset. He was talking about the defeats that real hustlers, real entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs excuse me, will face and take those L's and bounce right back like it's nothing. He said, if I you know, got kicked out of stars and you know, couldn't make another hit like power, he said, I see this guy across the street selling peanuts. Mm-hmm. He said, I set up a peanut shop stand right across the street from him, call it 50s Nuts. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. you know, and maybe I'd put some chocolate or some some uh, some different type of sugars on my nuts so my nuts are more appealing to the right. other guys. And then maybe I'm in Yankee Stadium. And he's like building yeah. up this this nut conglomerate, you yeah. know. So, yeah. and that's how you got to think. And I, I, they say that entrepreneurs aren't made, they're born. You know, yeah. you either feel that way or you don't. I like to disagree with that notion. I think you can teach anybody to be anything. But that natural, innate, can't stop, won't stop, puffy mindset, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is something that we have more of than people who aren't geared toward that level of risk. Yeah. What's your, um, when you were coming up, I know we talked a lot about your mom, any other mentors anybody that mentored you in in business or in finance that like like you emulated or you you modeled yourself after or, or helped you get from get your mind in the right spot yeah so uh, that's a great question I think back to so the first person I ever thought I didn't know what a mentor was at the time but that I looked up to and emulated and it's funny because I got a chance to go knock on his door and see him uh, a few years back was a guy named Ivan. Kimball. Ivan Kimball was the son of Bernard Kimball, who owned the funeral home at the end of my block, Hmm. Kimball Funeral Home on 53rd and uh, Bryan or Haverford. And 
Ivan was probably, when I was a child, maybe he's 10, 15 years older than me. So he was, you know, in his mid to late 20s. And he had this Rottweiler named Cuddy. And he strapped weights on Cuddy. And we walk, I thought it was the oh, coolest thing because Cuddy was so strong and he walked with like this bow. And uh, Ivan was an Omega Sci Fi fraternity member of Q. And I grew up saying to myself, I wanted to go to college and pledge Q. So my first thoughts of going to college, and you don't think of where these thoughts get planted in you, yeah. was from somebody who lived across the street and, you know, didn't really speak to me that much, but said yeah. hi from time to time. Yeah. What's up, young fella? And I kind of idolized Ivan when I was younger and wanted to be like him. But the first mentor mentor I ever had was my the, the first love, my ex-girlfriend and now very good friend, Angel. Angel's parents were very well educated. Her dad had went to Harvard. Her uncle Stephen had went to uh, University of Chicago and uh, was into finance. He worked at a firm called Pryor McClendon and Counts, which is a black owned municipal bond trading firm in Manhattan. So when Angel presented me to her dad and to her uncle, I was like, I love him. <laughs> and they took me up to uncle Steve's house in Pipersville, uh, at the end of the Delaware, up um, Lambertville, Route 29. Yeah, yeah. And great house, beautiful scenery. I'm out the ghetto. I was enjoying myself. And Angel went in the house, and I'm on the porch with Uncle Steve and, and Rich, her dad, and they start drilling me. What do you want to do with yourself? Who are you? Da, da, da. And I'm not going to play football. I'm going to the NFL. And it's like, BS. That's not what you're going to do. <laughs> you know, you sound like you got half a brain. Like, you know, and they start talking to me and asking me what my favorite subject in school was and this, this, this. And these are conversations I had never had. And more importantly, I had never talked to a man. You know, I realized that at that point in my life, the only male that I'd ever dealt with for, for more than 10 minutes was my high school football coach. And I only played one year of organized football. So I didn't have a lot of male influence at all growing up. And Having these two guys who I knew what Harvard was, I knew what yeah. University of Chicago was, I said, oh, these, these are some yeah. real cats right here. So having them at my disposal and having them take an interest in me, if for no other reason they didn't want their niece slash daughter dating a knucklehead, they could see she was into me, so they, they wanted me to be okay, that shaped me and pushed me into finance more yeah. than, than anything else. Uncle Stephen was a client. Uncle Stephen... Uh, actually brought business to me when I was at Payne Weber right before it became UBS because he was day trading, um, market timing, um, some, some different funds. And he passed away not too long ago, a few years back. And he was the first person that I've ever been in a room with that died. Hmm. You know, so he was, um, his, he had suffered a lot. He had a stroke. He was in uh, the Twin Towers when 9-11 happened. He was on, wow. you know, he was able to make it out successfully, but he was never the same after that. Then he had a stroke and he suffered some, some other ailments. When it was time to take him off the respirator, Angel's husband couldn't make it to the hospital. And, you know, like now we have like a sister-brother relationship. And she's like, well, Uncle Stevens, they, they're going to take him off the respirator. And I said, you can't be alone for that. So yeah. I went and I never experienced anything like that before. It was just like watching someone taking their last breath. You know they're going to pass away. Yeah. That was kind of crazy. Uh, but that mentorship still to this day motivates me. Like, you know, because Uncle Steve's not here anymore. And I and, and Rich. Rich passed away too at an early age. He was one of the first black uh, executives at Polaroid. 
and Digital Electronic Corporation, DEC Computer. Mm-hmm. He's a computer guy. You would love him. Uh, he was Texas Instruments. He, he did a lot of the computer companies when they were first coming out, and then they kept closing because yeah. consolidation. Yeah, sure. He ended up at Dell in Texas. So, you know, and he also was acute. I rep for these cats. Like, you know, that's who now for me, I'm like, yo, Uncle Steve and, and Rich aren't here anymore, so I'm going to go out here and make this money. I'm going to go out here and make my mark because their fingerprint that they put on me, yeah. I want it to have meant something. Yeah. So so a lot of that, that mentorship meant a lot to me. That idea of, of having a mentor, I think, is incalculably valuable in almost everyone I've ever talked to who's, who's had some level of success. There's always somebody mm-hmm. who played that or somebodies who played that role at, at particular times in someone's life. And with all the, you know, all the programs out there and all the, um, you know, community activism and all of the, you know, how do we solve these big socioeconomic problems? Right. It's a, it's a block and tackle game. It's a, it's a hand-to-hand combat game. Like, it's really the one person who says the right thing to you at yep. the right time changes your trajectory. It's not these macro programs of of empowerment of a community it's just a couple well well placed well timed words it's crazy like you know and once again that's why i love doing this with you uh, and us talking and even if and even even when or if we shift the format like we have to continue making sure we're on the conversation no matter who a guest is or anything because we've never discussed this before but what you just said is exactly what i feel i tell people this all the time first of all i believe in giving back i believe in charity i believe in helping I was a recipient of help, and I and I help, but I don't believe in macro programs. I don't believe you give a billion dollars. Like people hear these big numbers, give a billion dollars, but you're giving it to a hundred thousand people, and everybody got with ten yeah. grand, and it didn't make a difference at the end of the day. It's not going to change anybody's life. But one-on-one attention, that micro level, that micro level makes a difference. And if you can reach people on a personal level, the smaller the room, the better the the result like yeah. the level of connection is so much higher we're all looking in business especially to scale 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 reach more people make it bigger yeah but the deeper the connection the, the more intense and relatable the conversation and the efforts that you put forth are that's when real differences happen yeah. so i completely agree like that micro level of of mentorship is much better than any big brother big sister program i've been in been in those yeah you know one-on-one attention is always going to win the day yeah it's it's, um, I say this all the time, you know, when, whenever I get into conversations about, especially, you know, with proximity here, conversations about Camden, right? So, like, you know, the, the plight of Camden and how, how bad things are. I said, bro, you put me there. Right. You know what I'm doing. I'm selling drugs. Yeah. I'm well, shooting people. Uh, yeah. Like, whatever, there's no what da- what, whatever's got to happen. Right. I'm going to do that. Right. So, so it's all about, you have to understand that, that it, it's, who are who are you looking up to as a kid to try and emulate? Who mm-hmm. are your role models? Who's around you? And your role model naturally is going to be the guy on the block who's got the nicest car right. or the most money in his pocket or the girl nicest girl. Yeah. yeah, I mean, why would you not? It's it's human nature. You know, this is we're we are not far removed from our, you know, um, caveman days. Right. Like I'm going to emulate the dude who's running things in my circle. Right. Because my circle is not this. My circle is this block. Right. And whoever that dude is, I'm either going to emulate him and one day take him down. Like, that's my territory. That's such a logical way to see things because very little outside of that makes sense. So that's what's what's 
the logic in it is like, yeah, this is what I see. This is what, you know, once again, I told you I'm listening to the book, The Four Agreements. Yeah. And the great thing that that book points out is that for the majority of our life up until our mid-20s, no decision that we've ever made was our own. You know, everything was something that was poured into us or that we learned through observation or we learned through trial and error of someone else's guidance and punishing or rewarding. And when you think about what you just said about what you see is what you're going to emulate, that's who we all are at a certain point. It takes an outlier. It takes a very unique circumstance to make that not be what happens. And when you get some of these high... Minded, uh, what are they? Right wing. I, you know, I don't do politics, so I guess it's a high-minded right wingers who say no. You know, inner city kids, whether they're black, whether they're brown, whatever, they're inherently bad. They're inherently they're in the ghetto for a reason. They, you know, they're inherently deficient, and no matter what pond you put them in, they're going to swim the same way. I love the movie Trading Places for emulating the difference of that. You know, it was such a great, you know, with most things that are comedic hit home better than things that are serious for me. But seeing that example portrayed, that if I take everything away from someone who's successful, they have no choice but to go to where the water is rising, you know, at for them. And conversely, you throw somebody in 17 feet, you know, some people drown, but the majority of people are going to fight for their life to swim and find out, oh, my God, I'm pretty good right. in the 17 feet. Right. So it's it's always a circumstance, a situation of what your circumstances are. It's a situation of opportunity. And I hear so much. I'm, I'm so involved with conversation, you know, talking yeah. all the time yeah. now. Yeah. And it's not just always a dialogue. It's 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 back and forth communications. And the the state of race it's not just a black white thing anymore it's a black black thing it's you know there are so many african americans who carry a level of shame when they look at their poor uneducated counterparts because they think that mainstream america can't differentiate right and i don't want to be seen as them you know and that that hurts my soul, like, you know, because, uh, and, and I always <laughs> sound horrible when I try to quote the Bible or, or speak anything that's uh, written down in, in religious texts, but it says, for the grace of God, dare go I, or something yeah, to that effect, yeah. where if it wasn't for a certain break or the favor of God or something, I'm there, right. you know? Right. I, I, I tell this story all the time, and my ex-roommate, like, still gets mad at me about this. So, and I'm sure the statute of limitations is up on this. I'll tell the story right now. I bought a 280ZX 2 plus 2 when I turned 18. I got hit by a car earlier, got some case money. Once again, no no guidance to know. I should have taken that case money and bought some Microsoft stock or something uh, back in 87, 88. I bought this 280Z 2 plus 2 and I loved that car. It was my, oh, it was just, I was a big dude, squeezed in it. T-tops out, riding back and forth up to Reading, Pennsylvania, up to go to Kutztown University. Came home one weekend, and my brother took my car without my permission and ran it smack dab into an L pole in Philly, elevated train pole, and put a V in the front of my car. <laughs> Brought it home, 
And my mom always favored, I got the middle child syndrome really bad, but it's still true. She always favored him. He could do no wrong. And she didn't even yell at him. I'm like, my car. Yeah. Oh, it's just a car. Like, what? <laughs> like, you know, and so she like did, you know, fakely reprimand him and tell him he had to fix my car. So, you know, I'm 18 at the time. My brother is 20. Mm-hmm. In school, just like I'm in school. He didn't have any money. So he's like, you want your car fixed? I was like, yeah, I want my car fixed. You're going to fix it. Because at this point now, I'm bigger than him. I've always been bigger than him, but I, I, I'm, I'm feeling myself now. Yeah. Like, I'm going to beat you down if you don't fix my car. He says, come on. Where are we going? I said, we're going over to Leslie's. Now, Leslie is another one of my dear friends, and I consider her a sister. My brother used to date her when we were younger. And on Leslie's block, a guy drove a brown 280ZX 2 plus 2. And my brother's like, we got to steal this car. What? He said, we got to steal this car. What do you mean we have to steal the car? He said, I need the parts off of this car to fix <laughs> your car. So we're going to steal this car. Okay. You know, yeah. <laughs> so we steal the car. And he's like, okay, here's what you got to do. Take it to school. Take it up to Kutztown because it's going. I, I was so, you know, you ever see the movie The Accountant? Yeah. So yeah. The, the scene when Ben Affleck goes to rescue the girl in the bathroom, and she's like, "How do you know what to do here?" I'm looking at him like, "How do you know all of this? You know how to, you know yep. that we have to steal a car. Right. You know how to steal the car. You know that I need to take it to hide it for several weeks while it's on the beach. Where you been learning this shit, man? What house did you grow up in? So we're, uh, you know, I take the car to Kutztown, and you know, he's don't drive it when you're up there. Just park it and let it sit. You know, you're good. So. Three weeks, four weeks, let the car sit. He calls me, bring the car home, it's cool. We're gonna strip it, we're gonna put the parts on your car. Okay, so me and my boy Jay, we jump in the car and we start driving down to Philadelphia. And I don't have the common sense that guy gave a Billy Goat to realize you don't do 90 miles per hour in a <laughs> stolen car. car. So I'm coming down and we're, we're, we're almost home. So I'm coming, we came past King of Prussia and I'm on 76 on uh, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania uh, Route 76 going into Philly, and I pass a cop sitting, a state trooper sitting on the exit. I saw it when I passed him. I knew I was doing at least 82 when I passed him, and I'm like, oh, shit. And my man Jay had been sleeping, and when I said, I said it so loud, it woke him up. Said, what's wrong, what's wrong? I said, man, I just was speeding and, and, and passed the state trooper. And he starts laughing. He's like, oh, man, you have to get a ticket. I said, oh, no. It's going to be worse than that, bro. He's like, what do you mean worse than that? And he's like, I said, this car is stolen. And he got so sober, he's straight right away. He's like, what? What, you got me in a stolen car? And Jay was the guy who grew up in a, a housing project. You know, every he was the hopes and dreams of his entire yeah. family. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, I can't <laughs> go to jail for Grand Theft Auto because you didn't tell me we were in a stolen car. Man, I'm sitting there like, yo, should I try to outrun this dude? Right. I'm thinking of all the stupid stuff that you think of when you're 18, doing 90 in a stolen car. And by the grace of God, go I. The cop literally pulls up to my bumper as if to say, I saw you speeding. Mm-hmm. And goes around me and catches the car that was going faster than me. So it's put the, put the fear of life in me, but pulled over a dude that was going slightly faster. Right. right. And... I count myself, you know, what's my life look like now? You know, yeah. you know, what do I, I'm black, so I'm not getting joyriding. You know, I'm not getting a, a slap on the wrist. I'm getting grand theft auto. You yeah. know, I'm getting a felony. I'm getting yeah. not going back to college. Yeah. And am I 
Charles Tank Harris today if that goes that way? No, probably not. Probably not. Probably you not. know, so I don't look down my nose at anybody because I made, you know, I made the same choices. Yeah. I made the same choices and it went a different way for me. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's where you have to get to with that then, and I feel exactly the same way. I think we touched on luck last week, but I, I think that that plays such a big factor. You know, once again, divine intervention or luck, call it what you want to call it, but breaks go left or right, your whole life is different. Right. Right, but I think that's when you look at um, our criminal justice system. Yeah. And what people are incarcerated for and what the, pe- the punitive de- penalty is that, not just in time lost, but in in what happens after, right? right? So once you tag somebody with a felony charge, mm. there is no revisitism. There's no returning back to normal life, even after you've paid your debt to right. society. Like the, the, uh, the framing was, you did this wrong, therefore you're going to sacrifice this much time of your life. Right. Arguably that's, use, that's, that's a useless equation, but let's just go with it for a second. Then after you've paid your debt, you're, you're returned to society to, uh, as if nothing happened. Yeah, start again. Yeah. Right, which is not true. That's not what happens. Once you, once you have that on your record, your, your opportunities shrink to nothing. Right. And if you were at all ambitious prior to, like we talked about before, you're not going to work at McDonald's. Right. And I don't even know if you can work at McDonald's with a, with a significant yeah, I don't felony, think they let you sell but the Big Macs if you... So you, <laughs> if you're, you're talking a minimum wage job. Right. And most people are going to say, well, fuck that. Right. I'm going back to crime. Uh, yeah. Or even if you weren't into crime. Now I'm you, going to become a you, criminal. You've just spent five years learning everything there is to learn about crime. Right. You now have connections. You have right. the guys who got out before you. And you're going, my options are... So, so I've already probably been abandoned by... Everybody who was my friend before I went in, mm-hmm. maybe half my family right. before I went in. I'm coming out broke. Mm-hmm. Um, if I didn't give up anything, I, I did make and I gave it up in restitution, but mm-hmm. most likely I didn't have much, you know, in the bank. Right. What are my options? Right. The, there are some social programs, but they're intended to get you housing and a job. And as we said, it, it's an unsatisfying life. So your your mental equation of do I go and now try to make something of myself with a criminal enterprise versus do I try to stay straight? That scale. I mean, you got to be really morally set to, to sign up for that that uh, and, happy path. And you know what really bothers me about the justice system is the inherent racism in it. You know and. So I'll be the black guy here because I am. It's just, it's definitely not any level of consistency of how the laws and the punishments sure. are meted out. So a couple things come to mind. You, what you were just talking about reentry and, and going through things. I watched that documentary, When They See Us or How They See Us, about the Central Park Five. And they were all railroaded. Yeah. And so the one guy got out, the Hispanic guy. And just the way his life was after that, trying to get a job, trying to do right. And he ends up in crime because he can't go back to the normal, which was his normal, based on what you're saying. So I think of things like the, the best, most recent comparison, Lori McLaughlin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she did all of this buying of the grades for her kid to go to college and was found guilty and got this slight slap on her wrist slap on the wrist of punishment. Yeah. I saw a story of a black woman who used a friend's address 
to get her kids into a better school district, and they put her in jail for 14 years. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what are we doing? Like, you know, it's just, I, I said this the other day to someone, and they, of course, a lot of times when I say things, I've never thought about it that way, uh, which is why we're doing this yeah. conversation, yeah. you know, just to get kind of have people think a little differently. Had this conversation with one of my, uh, another black person, another one of, one of my black uh, business associates, and we were talking about how I hate, I wouldn't use the word hate, I, I, I dislike crime. I don't want crime. Yeah. I definitely don't want violent crime. You know, I definitely don't want people losing their lives. I would really enjoy and support and embrace living in a zero tolerance crime environment. Yeah. You know, I'm talking about stupid zero tolerance. Like you do 10 miles over the speed limit, they take you out back, shoot you in the back of the head, and they bill your family yeah. for the price of a bullet. Like yeah. just hard on crime. Yeah. We would have no crime if that was the case. Why don't we have that society? Because the minute they told you it was okay to shoot somebody in the back of their head for going more than ten miles per hour, all the black people in this country will be dead. Yeah. That would be the that would be the license to literally go out and say they're all criminals, let's shoot them in the back of the head. Yeah. And the the irony of that is so you have your white portion of the population that is just straight racist, just that percentage that's racist. But I'm confident that they don't like crime either. Yeah. I'm confident that they would love a crime-free country. But we can't have a crime-free country because of your boys, you know? Because yeah. you and your racist kind would abuse the policies that would allow us to... Because I'm black, and I don't want people murdering and raping. Like, yeah. I, I don't understand. I, and I, I have a deep understanding of things that I always tell people it's a, it's a gift and a curse. My ability to be understanding of things that I completely disagree with. Sure. So, and I use this story, it's a, it's a racial story. I use, uh, I was flipping channels one time. There's always two channels. I don't watch TV at all anymore. But when I did, two channels used to always get me, the History Channel and Animal Planet. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. I, I, I'm flipping channels, I'm going to try to find something else on in the History Channel and Animal Planet would get me every time. So I'm on the History Channel one morning and it's the study of the origins of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I'm riveted. I'm, I, I want to know where these people decided to get their hoods from and why. So I'm watching this, and they're interviewing different people in different regions of the country, and they're interviewing this guy in a trailer park. You know, let's, let's just call him Roy, for, yeah, for lack of yeah. a better term. Roy is your poor Middle Tennessee, West Virginia, white guy with one and a half teeth in his mouth, rotted off Mountain Dew, probably has never actually met a black person ever, but hates us all. Yeah. And so they're going around, they're interviewing, and Roy has just got nothing positive to say about the black man at all. And they get to the end of the show, and they're just like, Roy, like, you know, they're taking final, final snippets yeah. from everybody. Roy, why, why, why do you hate the blacks? Like, what's yeah. going on? Come on. And he says, why I hate them niggas? I'll tell you why. I'm a God-fearing Christian. And the Bible says that my Jesus will not come back and give me my salvation until this earth is free of the mud people. And the mud people, look at them blacks, they mud people. So until the last one of them is dead, I can't meet Jesus. And I, I just hate him. And I'm sitting there like, Roy, Roy better never see me out in these streets. <laughs> but I get it. 
Roy, I understand. If I was as programmed to be dumb as you are, and I really thought that black people and mud people were interchangeable, and I really thought that, that was written somewhere in the Bible, which I read, haven't read the Bible cover <laughs> to cover, but I'm pretty confident that that's not in there that way. And But if I believe that, and if I'm a God-fearing Christian who wants to see Jesus, and that what we all want, you know, I get it. Okay, now it makes sense. My best friend, <laughs> Shane Gottray, who's a fool, we were, I don't let him drive me anywhere anymore. But this was back when I was stupid enough to let him drive some of the time. He was driving over the dotted line that separates the lanes in between the far right lane and the middle lane. And I, every time I would tell him to get into a lane, yeah. he would argue with me. I said, what are you doing? He said, my dad told me to drive like this. <laughs> Why? He says, because you want to be able to get over to the shoulder if an accident's going to happen, but you don't want to be where the on-ramp people are going to come on, so you don't want to commit to a lane. I said, your dad is an idiot, <laughs> and you're an idiot for listening to him. Like, what? But the great thing about that is he had his reason. Yeah, sure. And that's what I've learned in life is – Everybody has their reason, and you can't be quick to condemn somebody for their reason because you got a reason. And you, you know, we talked about this last time. Like, I want my turn. I want my turn to explain my reason. So, as dumb as I may think your reason is, I can respect it if it's based in something and it's consistent. Yeah. You know, and and Roy, he was consistent through the whole show with his hatred for the black man. And when he explained why that it was it was the right thing to do because we were standing in between him and salvation. <laughs> okay, Roy, I get you. It's crazy. It's crazy how how um, how much geography and where you are in the world mm-hmm. dictates your level of racism or, or many other things, right. but like you traveled internationally, you know, been all been all over the world as well, and I don't see what we have here in America. I don't see that other places. Right. Right, I don't see it. I, I spend a lot of time in Asian countries. Now, there are, there is definitely a certain level of racism between different Asian cultures. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But it's not the same as the white and black thing we have here in the United States. And this whole thing is not that old. Like, if you look at U.S. history and, and history of, of slavery in America, like, we're talking what, 500 years max? Right. I don't, I don't know that they said, you know, yeah. I have to look them up, but, like, it's not a lot of time. And if you go back before that, and you, and you start to look at um, African um, uh, civilization pre-slavery, and you look at um, s- various different um, tribes and or cultures and or regions, you're looking at some of the most successful, like the the richest man ever. Mansa Musa. Yeah. You're looking at Egypt. You know, check the records. It's in Africa. Greatest. Library of Alexandria. That's <laughs> where you sent people to yep. learn. Like, Greatest scientists in the world. Yeah. So so when did that, like, obviously I know when that happened. I, and I understand why that happened, right? It's easiest to, if you can create a new narrative that says that these people are stupid and right. these people should, it makes it easier to enslave someone right. when you think less of them as the human. human. Yeah. Right, so I mean, I guess that's sort of natural, but it gets back to my comment last week about you know Black Lives Matter. It's like fuck that, Black Lives are awesome. Like right. check check this shit out. Yeah. Like, like and check cultural contributions over the last hundred years. You like pop music, <laughs> you like rock and roll, you like blues, you like soul, you like rap, you like pretty much anything. Right. 
you're going to trace it back to, to some, some black person singing. Like, yep. you, but that doesn't, for whatever reason, and I, I'm sure I know a lot of the reasons, mm-hmm. it doesn't come through. Like, shit, if, if, if my culture invented something other than potatoes, <laughs> be sure, we'd be like, that's our fucking shit, man. Yeah, but I love those french fries, though, so right. you know, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan. I, uh, and Irish whiskey. Yeah, there you go. And there I love a go. good redhead. Like, you know, it's some things. Yeah, some things, man. You know, I, I definitely think y'all golf courses are for shit, though. Like, I don't know what they, what you call those things out there. They're, they're like cow pastures. But, you know, I'm sure, I'm surprised, truthfully, I'm surprised that the best golfers in the world year in and year out aren't Irish. Yeah. Because Scottish or Irish, those fucking things that they play on over there, That's they should come thing. and play here and be like, oh, you know, <laughs> and clearly I talk to Trey way too much because almost all my stories surround him. But we were joking about Yasiel Puig on the Dodgers and how he yeah. came on the scene. It was just a monster. It was and he said, well, you know what it was? You know, he was down in Cuba playing with a toothpick in a, right, right. In a, in a, on a fo- baseball field that the grass was up to his knees. He came up here and was like, wait, they cut the grass? Yeah. They give me my own bat? <laughs> He's like, he came up and just dominated. You know, just, of course, just completely obliterated that the fact that made Cuba as third role as you could make it in his mind. Yeah. But it, it's one of those things where when if you can do it on this particular Right. playing field right. when it, when we make it nice and neat and give you your own locker yeah. it should be the greatest thing in the world yeah i you know it's funny i wanted to i think every time we talk we could have a whole diatribe about race and i would be i would think that we're not doing what we're capable of if every time we talk yeah, we sure. don't delve into race because sure. i think that's one of the beauties of our relationship is that it exists inside of the racial vacuum that the world gives us. Like, you know, we don't do though. I don't see Devlin as not a white guy to yeah, me. Yeah. And Tank's not a black. No, I'm, I'm black. You're white, you know, and, and we know this. And we thrive because of it, not instead of it. You know, yeah. not, 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 you know, we don't have, it's not something that we have to get over. It's something that adds to our relationship. So, you know, I would gladly lay down my car seat when the cops come, you know, <laughs> so they can see you instead of me. But no, when I was, uh, I had a conversation online this week that troubled me a bit, but I couldn't wait to talk to you about the topic. So I believe it's been substantiated and, and verified that Tyler Perry is now a billionaire. And congratulations to Tyler Perry. Great feat. In one of the Facebook groups that I'm in, the question was posed, should there be such a thing as a billionaire? Or should we, you know, basically talking in my mind, the socialism word, you know, the redistribution of wealth. And I I just am against that altogether. But I was, you know, once again, I I read the comments, I was shocked at the number of people. I was like, yeah, there shouldn't be any billionaires. And I was like, what are we talking about here, people? And reading it and getting the other perspective, which is always great to get, especially if you're going to communicate to the masses, you can bring these broader ideas to people. I I had to post, though. I had to post, and I made a lengthy post. And I said, you know, instead of, because the conversation was put a cap on how much money people could make yeah, or tax the wealthy so egregiously that it wouldn't make them wealthy anymore. And I was like, okay, so let's let's walk that through. So there was a documentary on ABC several years ago, and it was entitled Greed is Good. And it talked about 
basically at the heart of it was that you cannot get wealthy in a capitalist society without creating a good or service that the masses need mm -hmm. or want. It's very yeah. simple. Yeah, yeah. So if you walk that equation down the road, if you eliminate all the people who can get wealthy, you've eliminated all the good that would go to the masses. Because most people who get wealthy don't make something that costs a billion dollars and sell it to one person. Right. They make something that costs $39.99 yeah. and they sell it to 27 million people. Yeah. And if 27 million people need it, it was needed. Right. So why do we punish the person who made it? Why do we limit the person who made it? I'm not a fan of Medea movies, but there's a whole segment of the country that is. Yeah. And he's made some other movies that I'm very much a fan of. Yeah. And his entertainment skills and his ability to uplift the culture and, and entertain multiple cultures warrants a billion dollars, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost intrinsic to, to money, the idea of fiat money. Like, we're not, it's not backed by anything, right? right. Money, money is intrinsically paper. But it's supposed to be a measure of your contribution. Right, so you, the money is supposed to represent the amount of good or value that you've provided. Good may be questionable, right? The amount of value you've provided. So if I give you an hour worth of my time, I've provided you a, a value, and you've monetized that value as an employer to be worth $20. Mm -hmm. And I've traded my time for, for $20. I've traded my, my, 20, my one hour of value for $20. So, so your, your point stands in that you don't just become a billionaire because you got, you know, because you, you, somebody wrote you a check, you've provided value and value in a place where it can be multiplied such that you have a billion dollars. The question becomes if, if we don't have, if society is not leaning on people who have the haves, right, the, the 90, the one percenters, or, or in this case, the 0.1 percenters, if we don't, as a society, lean on them to be philanthropic in some way, shape, or form. Right. If, it's, if it's culturally acceptable to make all the money you want and take it to your grave or give it to your kids, then we're appropriating wealth. We're, we're, we're uh, focusing a tremendous amount of wealth in a few buckets, and if one of those buckets or a few of those buckets are stingy, mm -hmm. then we've locked up a lot of capital right. that could be doing more good yes, in the world. Better redistributed. Yeah, so, so that's not necessarily a socialist idea. That's just to say, like anybody, if you're just going to take your money and you're going to put it in the bank, I like to think that by spending, you're, you are, by circulating the money, right. you're doing good for society. Even if you're not actually out there altruistically taking on causes, just spending money, right? spending money locally, spending money in your community, you are, you are making somebody else's, you're putting bread on somebody else's table. You're really? allowing them to survive and allowing them to excel and, and bring their standard of living up. So by trapping such an inordinate amount of money in very few hands, you run the risk that those people do not spend it. Right. right? They, they control it. And I heard another argument very, very similar. It's like, let's just pick a number. When you get to that number, you get, you get the trophy that says you won the world. Like, <laughs> you made it. Like, you, you've done everything. You know, you, you've become famous for making money. You, you won. You, you get the trophy. There's only 10 of these. Like, woohoo. And now let's, any more money you make from this, you're not reasonably going to spend anyhow. Right. So let's, let's have a program by which 
you can direct it all you want. I don't believe it, it, it should be taken from you, but it has to be in circulation, like a, a circulation number, okay. not necessarily a socialist number. And I, and I hate the idea that that taxes are not um, are, are not fixed. Like it's not a fixed rate tax that we have these tiered tax things. I think that it, you you what you have instead is you need to have a minimum standard of living where you have no tax until you reach some whatever society says is reasonable, and that may be disparate based on where you are, right? So some you live in this zip code, the the minimum income for standard of living that we decide as a society is, as the number one. We want to be all you know America best at everything. If you want to be an American, you get you're guaranteed this, right? right? And that is food. Education and healthcare. Right. Right. You shouldn't die because you don't have enough money. You shouldn't go hungry because you don't have enough money, um, and you should have a place to live. Mm-hmm. Right. So those are, if we are really gonna, you know, puff, puff our chests out and talk about how unique it is to be an American and how exceptional we are, we should be able to guarantee everybody that right. So once you've met that bar, anything beyond that is gravy. Right. You're living above the means, and there's some some responsibility you have to the infrastructure of the federal government and your state government to support those initiatives because we all drive on roads and we right. all like, like having a like having a military right. and, you know nobody's fucking with us and all these public works programs now is there far too much spending in government absolutely right. like right. We're, we're it's just insane but it's reasonable to expect a citizen to contribute a certain amount of a wage to those greater causes. Mm-hmm. And if that is proportionate with your income, whatever number you want to pick, 25% for, for conversation, it's like a tithe, right? So right. as long as you can afford it, you should be paying it. But don't tax me more on a on a exponential scale because I've made more. You're right. already getting 25% times my number. Right. Don't bring it up to 30, 35, 30, 40, yeah. fucking 50, 55% you're talking about for, for taxing the yep. ultra-wealthy. I think if we if we can do that, but most importantly, provide for that working that that base wage and that um, uh, Andrew Andrew Yang, who's running for president, had that idea that like everybody guaranteed uh, guaranteed basic. There's a term for it. Everybody's like a thousand dollar check. Mm-hmm. Like everybody, everybody, everybody. UBM, you get a thousand. You get a thousand because that's where we think if if you have that much money, you're going to. Live somewhere, which means you're going to send that to a landlord. You're going to eat food, which means you're paying a grocer. You're going to uh, have health care, which means you're paying a doctor or, or those in the medical community. And it's just like this idea of circulating cash. So I like to focus on the circulation more than the taxation or the, um, the communist aspect of that. Just keep the money moving. I think that, so my thoughts probably run 180 degrees away from what you just said. Now I say I'm a, I'm it's a thought that I had. I didn't even share it. I didn't have anybody to talk to about this when I was thinking it. I believe so I'm going to use an example that jumps away from money for a minute but it'll bring us right back. I'm going to talk about what I consider human behavior and how human behavior always wins the day. So in your example, Mm -hmm. it would be great if people did all of those things that you just said. But human behavior pretty much guarantees us that they're not going to. So they're going to have this fair wage. Mm -hmm. They're going to have this, you could get a 
a house. You can get this. It almost goes back to the origins of racism, though. But I don't want what Mary has. You know, I'm better than Mary. Why do, why do we both get a fair wage? Well, no, you can go do better than the fair wage, but we're going to give at least a fair wage. No, because Mary doesn't even deserve the fair wage. Like, that's what people are going to do. So I think about the Rooney Rule in football. The Rooney Rule, great intention. You have to interview minority candidates when a coaching position mm-hmm. opens up. So there was something I learned a very long time ago, the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And owners and GMs of NFL teams historically have probably a higher level of systemic racism in them than our broad-based government. And and they're capitalists. And they're alpha males. And they're like, who the hell is going to tell me what I got to do with my team? I'll trumpet some blacks around here for, for ESPN to see that we interviewed them. But I'm going to give the job to that white guy over there who's never coached anybody better than a 10th grade tight end at a middle school in Iowa before I give it to this black offensive coordinator who's been Super Bowl tutor for 10 years because I want to. Mm -hmm. What I have to do, though, I have to behave inside the boundaries of the rules that I've been provided. And I think that bringing it back to the money and the fair wage and and this level of setting a minimum standard, people will do what needs to be done to get their $1,000 check, and then they'll be exploitive on other areas. And it'll, it'll create a rampant level of, I don't want to go as far as to say crime, mm. but definitely corruption. You know, if I know people and... This is just going to sound like one of the most inhumane things you've probably ever heard me say or may ever hear me say. But some people should... I, I have a hard time understanding how some of the people I've met were the sperm that won the race. <laughs> you know, because they say, you know, you shoot out X number of sperm toward the egg and one of the sperm has to be super to have won the lottery to get to the egg and the other millions of them didn't make it. What the hell was wrong with those eggs or those sperms if you were the one that won? Because some people are, they've just given up. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the only example, the only uh, label I can give them. Because I don't want to say they're faulty or they're deplorable. They've given up. Like, they don't want to win. Mm-hmm. They don't want to do well. They're going to take that system where everybody's given a fair wage and they're going to find a way to mess it up. So... The only way to be fair is to make it so that there are winners or losers. And do I feel as though we give every opportunity to the people who are losing? Sure, I do. Do we give them even more of the fair share of things? Yeah, I can can live with that. But I'm not for disincentivizing brain draining, good industries because I want to limit anybody or raise up a lower class to the point where I'm going to be like, yo, you know what? And and another Trey Johnson conversation. I was mentoring a kid. He was a, a Philadelphia public school quarterback and he didn't get any Division One looks and he was pretty talented and everybody thought he should have gotten more attention than he got. 
So his mother came across me through somebody, asked me would I help him. I helped him get into prep school. I thought if he went to a prep school for a year, he'd get some Division One offers. So he went to a school out in Scranton, Wilkes-Barre called Wyoming Seminary Prep. And when he played all of his games, I went to his games, and one of his games was at, I think it was called the um, the George School or the Hill School. It was out in Pottstown. It's another private school. And so Trey and I rode out there one night to watch his football game. And we were parked outside. We were early. We were parked in between this private school, which was beautiful, and this golf course. And the golf course was gorgeous. And Trey doesn't play golf, but I do, and I was talking about yeah. this golf course. And I said to him, I said, you know, it probably cost about $25,000 to be a member here. And then the dues, that's just the initiation fee. And then the dues are probably, you know, eleven dollars $1,500 a month. Yeah. He said, people pay, pay that to play golf? I said, they do. He said, but can't you just go to like another course and pay $40 and play a round of golf? I said, you can't. I said, and you'll note the difference. I said, it's like the Norwegian Cruise Line versus right. Carnival right. Cruise Line. Right. Right. I don't want to be on a Carnival Cruise. I don't want to go vacation with people who saved $10 a week for two years to take this vacation. Yeah, I'm bougie. I don't want to be with them people, white or black. I want to be with the people who spent $5,700 for a week to cruise. Right. Those are my kind of people. Right. And I want to be on the golf course that costs $25,000 for the initiation fee yeah. and $1,500 for the dues. If you start making everything like a $40 course, that to me is what your you know situation kind of resembles to me. Yeah. And I don't want to play on that course. See, what I see is that and I, I am certainly a capitalist, and I agree with everything that you're saying, but I don't think that... I think there just needs to be a floor, right? So there, there just needs to be a safety net, like literally a social safety net, where you you get a string of bad luck, you get pulled over by the cop, you get hooked on drugs, whether they be street or you know prescription. Right. You, someone, you know, you're you're um, you're born into a situation where, you know, you've got family issues, you know, whatever they may be. Mm-hmm. You didn't ask for that shit. Right. Like, those are all circumstances. And, and the way the system is set up right now, and it's gotten better with, with Obamacare, but the way the system is effectively set up is that you can literally be homeless in America. You can literally be hungry. There are thousands of, uh, I don't know how many thousands, right? We have to pull the numbers. But there are thousands of kids who go, who go to bed hungry because... Not necessarily, it's certainly possible that their, their parents are less than ambitious, are lazy, are checked out, are hooked on, hooked on drugs by their own choice, mm-hmm. are mentally unstable, are depressed, or any, any of these things, whatever you want to tie it to. But I think that we've come enough far enough as a society that that doesn't mean you're hungry, your medical needs aren't met, and you don't have a house. I think we can guarantee that. I don't, this, it, and, and this is, my wife and I have this debate because she's a bleeding heart liberal, I guess they call it. You know, she, she thinks I'm just so cold. She's like, did you grow up poor for real? Like, what's wrong <laughs> with you? But, you know, I, I have this argument with her all the time that I can't understand why they feed kids in school. I just, like, what are we doing? Like, aren't we supposed to teach kids in school? Are we feeding them? What's going on with my money? Um, because I'm mad that, you know, like my man Michael Jackson said, if you can't feed your baby, then don't have a baby. Right. You know, so it's one of those things where 
I hear everything you're saying. And in the, if it's human, like if I'm outside and I'm seeing the homeless people, yeah, you know Big Tank is softy. Yeah. I'm giving them all my money. Like all everything I'm saying right now is out the window. Yeah. But on paper, I completely disagree with this because you know who's going to be the baddest M effort in the world? One of those people. Because it's the catalyst for greatness. Mm -hmm. We talked about it a little bit last time, like, you know, it's the struggle that makes you reach up. So you're talking about stealing people's struggle. That's what you're talking about doing. And I, and I was just going to make the exact opposite point, which is to say you're incubating what could be someone who would have never made it. You're at least giving them a, a floor from which to push off from. And me and you are Coach Boom and, and Coach Yost in Remember the Titans. Yeah. And he says, you know what? I may be a mean cuss, but I'm the same mean cuss to everybody. I want to, you know, there's a line in an old DMX song. He's talking about his son. He said, I'm going to put you on your ass and see where it makes, where it takes you. Mm -hmm. Without that struggle, man, without that, you know, and unfortunately, here's the unfortunate side of that. You put 100 people in that struggle bus, 95 of them go homeless and hungry. Yeah. But five of them fight like hell. And of the five that fight like hell, two of them make it. And of the two that make it, one of them is badder than we could have ever thought a person could be. Yeah. I want to meet that one person. I don't want to know that one person will never exist because we made sure the other 95 people on the bus had at least a warm meal, a coat, and a house. Hmm. I know that sounds crazy yeah. to me, but I'm going the other direction with it. Yeah. So it's, I, like I said, and, and it's an easier choice to make when I'm not in the room with the 95 people. Sure. But that's what my true heart and belief system tells me is that I see the rose that grows from concrete. Mm -hmm. That's what I see. Give me that opportunity to have that rose grow from concrete. Don't come in and say, roses shouldn't be in growing in concrete. We're going to pave all this over and give everybody a flower pot. Yeah. That's troubling to me. Now, the problem is, we go back to my same example about zero tolerance justice. White people in this country have abused the mindset that I'm speaking of to keep black people down. Yeah. So it's very easy to do that with that thought process. What I'm saying is very weaponizable. Yeah. It's very dangerous. It's right, but it's very dangerous because in the wrong hands with the wrong motivation, you purposely make people part of the 95 that may have not needed right. to be there. Right, right, right. You're 100% you're, you're right because you, the opportunity for that rose to grow in your, in your social experiment you know, that we're playing forward now, you're, you're five to three to one, that is high in today's world and has been worse before, is highly dependent on who's going to allow that rose to right. grow. Right, right. And not get stepped on or incarcerated mm -hmm. or, or whatever. So uh, I guess at a, at a animalistic level, I think that you know, you're, you're basically running a hung, Hunger Games scenario. Right? right. You're throwing 100 people on an island and saying, one of you motherfuckers well, is coming maybe, out. And you're, you're the one. Yeah. Look to your right, look to your left. Yep. One of you motherfuckers ain't making it. But when we're done, that one Navy SEAL we got is a oh, bad yeah. boy. Right. <laughs> we right. set up the get over right. to get Osama right. if we need him to. Right. But... For the ones who didn't make it, where's their where's their life now? And I, I get it. I, yeah. Like I said, it's it's easy to be in the ivory tower and make these 
statements that I'm making. I, I, I will own that 100%. And I will appear to be a hypocrite to anyone who's hearing this if you ever see me around someone impoverished because they're getting a shirt off my back. Yeah. That's who I am. Yeah. But I think more for the greater good of society that my beliefs are right. Mm -hmm. And I don't have the luxury of following my own beliefs in that regard because our society is so un... See, see I'm speaking in a bubble. I'm speaking in fairness. Yeah. I'm speaking of let the chips fall where they may. We don't have a let the chips fall where they may right. society. Right. We have stacked a, decks. Yeah, we have stacked decks. And when you, when you have that, then you have to tip the scales a little bit the other way. But then I get offended because I have people who have seen these scales tip and they think I'm a result of the tipped scale. Right. And I'm the rose that grew out the right. concrete. Right. And, you know, it's just, it's a, it's an ever evolving situation, but it's always reverting back to the same origin. Whereas, you know, you touched on slavery earlier. I saw, you know, I see it quite often because I'm black and I will always be reminded of our history in this country. It's not just slavery. It went from slavery to Jim Crow segregation yeah. to oppressed rights to the civil rights. It lasted for so long. And to your point, you know, there are still people, and I, you know, maybe we got 20 more years and we can still make this statement, but there are still people who are alive today that it wasn't uncommon for them to see a body hanging from a tree. Yeah. You know, like, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like we're on the verge of a serious conflict in this country. You know, I don't want to dramatize and say, you know, go as far as, say, a race war or whatever the case may be. But something's going to happen. You know, it's just, it's, I see on my Facebook feed way too many ads and articles on how to pull your gun out your, your pants pocket faster and where to put it in your car and you know it's crazy you know the, the situation with the young white boy in um uh, who drove to wisconsin and shot those people you know let's and i wouldn't do this i wouldn't do this because i like being alive but me and you go to open carry state and both strap an ar-15 across our chest yeah. and walk in opposite directions down the street <laughs> you're going to hear pop, 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 pop. Yep. From my end of the street. Yeah. And you're going to be fine. Yeah. And that's that's messed up. Like, yeah. you know, it's my skin is 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 a weapon. It's it's makes people afraid. And yeah. why? <laughs> the people who don't have the skin of mine made the story up. Like, you know, it goes back to the old Eddie Murphy in his first stand-up. He's a white people say, hey, you know, black people have big dicks, but I don't believe it. You know, they made the story <laughs> up and they don't believe the rumor. They made the story up that we're savages and we're this and we're that, and then like walked away from the story and came back and was like, they're savages. Like, right, right, right. What, what are they going to do? I've heard. I've heard. You, you're the one who said it. Of course you heard it. And you know, it's just where does that end, man? You know, it's just you, you, you touched on it with the, when, when you, it, <laughs> I was so touched. And shout out to my my six year old niece Vienna for her birthday. I was so touched when you were telling me after the whole George Floyd incident happened that you know you Jessica and the kids watching the TV and watching what's going on and that the association was hey this could have happened to Tank. Yeah, and. I found myself wanting to comfort you guys. <laughs> it's okay. They won't be, they're not going to get a big tank. It's okay. Don't worry about it. 
And, you know, that's beautiful. That's our relationship, and that's beautiful. The reality is, is that, to your point earlier, so many whites are able to dehumanize a black person. And, you know, it goes back to when I'm talking to other black people. It's not as open and shut or clear cut as we may make it out to be because they don't, you know, they don't know what they're doing. Like they don't see us, you know, as the, as the documentary says, they see us differently. You know, we, we have to be the change we want to see in the world. We just have to keep fighting the good fight and, and presenting examples of common sense. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we have to yeah. do. Yeah, I think that it's, if you just take it back to human nature, if you, if you start to tear down all the artificial societal things that you know, we deal with on a daily basis, I said it before, we're, we're not too far removed from, from our animalistic days. And when it comes down to it, people are tribal. Right. You know, you're you're gonna go to your tribe. So we have to start seeing ourselves as a bigger tribe, right? Than what we are. And that you know, that would solve the problem if we literally got invaded by Martians. Yeah, sure. Like then we would all get together. You know, it would be no black and white. Them damn Martians is here. Yeah. You know, and and that may be the only thing that fixes it. You know, because until there's a reason to unify, we will stay divided. Because, you know, and and I thought about this. I was in Richmond, Virginia driving toward Georgia, and it was the funniest thing. I can My mind is a carnival. I stopped, it was me, my wife, and my 10-year-old stepdaughter, and my 10-year-old stepdaughter was getting McDonald's, and it was still when me and my wife were juicing, so I couldn't get McDonald's. We were upset. And we had Jersey tags, because we're from Jersey. Yeah. We pulled around to the drive-thru, and a car in front of us had Jersey tags. I thought they were my friends. Right, right. And I thought about the, con- the, the, the flip side of that is, how do you feel when it's the other tag? Like something yeah. as sim- silly yeah. as that. So that's the other side of racism. Like, hey, I don't like you because you're white and I'm black. But is it wrong to be like, hey, I like you because you're black and I'm black? Right. Is that wrong? I guess if you think about it, it's as wrong as not liking you for being white, right? Yeah. yeah. So that is so natural. I, I, wanna, I, I know we got to go, but I would wrap this with Tellus Lester. It's funny to tell to me. And I, I actually hope, and I, I would tell her the story before she listens to it, because one of my clients and good friends uh, listened to our podcast last time, so I'm hoping that she'll listen again. But this story made me feel so horrible for a heart. Not sorry. This moment in my life made me feel so horrible, but I said, oh, my God, I've done what the racist people have done. So I have uh, clients that are same-sex uh, married in, in Pennsylvania, love them to death, and... So you know how when you have like one black friend and you meet another black person and your instant is, hey, you should meet this person because you're both (laughs) black. black. (laughs) So I was in a meeting with another set of clients and they're about to do business with another same sex couple. Yeah. Two black women, my other couple, two white women. And the two black women took a liking to me. We started talking. Why was my immediate thought? I should introduce them to <laughs> Right, right, right. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I did what people do all the time. Yeah. And I thought nothing wrong of it, you yep. know, because I didn't think because of their sexual orientation, I really didn't, but clearly I did. Right. Like, it had right. to be the motivation at the back of my mind. I was like, no, I don't want them to think that, you know, because 
their relationship isn't still widely accepted mainstream, right. that I could be one of those people that right. won't accept that. Right. So look, they, I have another. They were your, your token black friend. Token, like, I'm cool. I got friend. I got a black friend. I got a black friend. Cool. I, 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 I same sex couples. Come on, I take gloves everybody. Yeah. I said I'm right. an asshole. Like yeah. you know, literally just had to take myself out behind the shed and beat myself yep. because I said now I can't be as. Hard. This goes back to what I was saying earlier. You can't be as hard on people no matter how wrong you find their views, yeah. because to them it's right. I didn't mean no harm. I mean, anybody who knows me knows that. I didn't yeah. mean any harm, but yeah. I was harmful. Yeah. You know, that that's a harmful view. It's a limiting view. Why would I not think to introduce them to my man and woman couple or a single guy? Like, why do that? Why was this the couple I wanted to introduce them to for, for a reference? That's a reference? The, hardest, the hardest part, though, is that somewhere in our human nature, mm-hmm. we group and organize. We group and organize. Right. It's like, we, it's what helped us survive is to classify and go, snakes, bad. I, I, Johnny got bit by one. He's dead now. I will stay away from snakes. Right. It's somewhere in our DNA is this, this idea that if we classify and identify, even when it's broad, that's safer than actually finding out. Right. And, and that is at the root of, of racism, at the root of discrimination, at the root of bigotry is, yep. it, are those ideas that that were good survival techniques. Right. And that's why, you know, for, for me and, you know, the thing I try to promote about uh, what we do is that you have to realize that it's not just the negative. It's just how much positive are you missing out on if you feel, if you, feel, if you paint that, bra- that broad right. brush. So, you know, in the spirit of what we do, the, the idea is to, to open up, you know, people's eyes and say, hey, you know, I know you've never tried, you know, Cherry Coke before, but give it a shot. Give it a shot. You, you might like it. So, Agreed. a pleasure as always, my friend. Thank you, baby. Great, great spending time with you. Great time, man. Um, you know, so I, I asked uh, Tasneem Suleiman, who is the uh, executive director and founder of Black Men Heal, to join us. Awesome. For our next uh, our next podcast, and she agreed. So we got to find a way to Beautiful. make that happen, man. We're gonna keep this Beautiful. going. Sounds good. Love always you, great man. talking to you. Love you.